Thank you, Brian. It's good to be here this morning and, uh, and uh, fill in for Wes, as if that can be done. Uh, we're missing him very much. I think he's out to a camp uh, out in my home state in New Mexico. So that's going to be great. I think Camp Blue Haven and so many neat uh, and ex exciting things going on there. So he, uh, he asked me to fill in for him today. I'm doing my best. So uh, it's great to be here. When we think about the family road trip, uh, that's kind of been Wes's theme since Mother's Day and on the way to Father's Day. Um, we think about, I do, I think about family road trips. I love them. It's a blast, right, to get in the car and to go uh, from place to place and wherever we want to go. A lot of times we, if, especially if it's a, a distance that we're traveling, we pack up all of our belongings, put it in uh, suitcases and so on, and perhaps at the last minute various things are, are gathered up. And lo and behold, as those suitcases are stacked by the vehicle, time to pack it. Okay, well, that's not always a pretty sight for me <laughs> because it's hard to get those, those baggage oftentimes. It's way too much, way you know, more than might even fit in the vehicle. Especially we're a family of five, and so some of the memories there. Um, all kinds of various things for five people in a vehicle that might not seat uh, seats them, but there's extra baggage. So it's, it can be kind of challenging. We might even think, hey, what baggage can I get rid of here so we can travel more lightly as we go uh, on our trip? But we think about life also on the road trip. Um, we do have something that's called emotional baggage that uh, we find ourselves wrapped up in too often. What can we do with all this baggage is a question we might be asking. What can we do with all this baggage on a road trip physically, but also emotionally? We certainly have, all of us, I think, uh, some baggage that's collected emotionally through our lives. Uh, I think about uh, a really good book written several years ago called the In Search for Significance by uh, Robert McGee. Perhaps you know of it. From that book has come all kinds of support groups, treatment programs and so on, as he establishes and, and reminds us of various uh, ways of thinking that we might find ourselves in, ways of thinking that aren't necessarily very helpful. He talks about a false belief that we might have, perhaps you can relate, I must have the approval of certain people before I can feel good about myself. So well, how you see me is, more, is kind of informs how I feel about myself. Certainly that's a false belief and can lead to fears of rejection. Maybe even become an approval addict, if you will. That could happen. A false belief also might be that I must have meet certain standards in order to feel good about myself. Uh, fear of failure if I, don't, if I don't measure up. A performance trap that I find myself in, perhaps. Another false belief that can be an emotional burden for us those who fail, including myself, are unworthy of love and deserve to be punished. Perhaps you've been there or known someone like that. And of course, since we deserve to be punished, something goes wrong, there's the blame game. Someone's got to be to blame. Not good emotional baggage to be going through life with. Another false belief that he mentions uh, in his book, Search for Significance, I am what I am, I cannot change, I'm hopeless. And leading ultimately maybe to a feeling of shame and uh, hopelessness. 
These are just a few examples of emotional baggage that we might find ourselves caught up in. It is important, I believe very important, and I believe God wants us to understand this as well, how important it is for us to be thinking clearly, thinking in a healthy way. And of course, this way of thinking is not healthy that I just mentioned. A passage in the book of Proverbs, which I love Proverbs, kind of a way to walk through life, uh, written by uh, Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived. He says, as a man thinketh in his heart, King James, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. So it's very important for us to come to grips with how we think about things going on around us. Now, we might think, well, of course... uh, Uh, What do I think about current events? Interesting. What do you think about current events? We could go on and on about that. What do I think about the weather? (laughs) What do you think about the weather? These are interesting things and, of course, uh, spark us to uh, some kind of, uh, you know, further conversation perhaps. But one of the most important questions to ask ourselves, I believe, on our journey through life is who do you think you are, you know? Who do you think you are, and who do you think other people are? A lot of times we'll look at someone, and they're coming across just a little bit too haughty and a little bit too conceited, and we might actually say that. Who do you think you are? Right? Uh, Reflecting, really, my view of how that person is. And then uh, maybe a little bit more of a lowly thought that we have regarding ourselves, we need to ask, who do you think you are? You know, maybe thinking of ourselves more, uh, uh, less important, and that's not going to be healthy either. So we think about, who do I think I am in this world? And it does kind of shape how I walk through this world. If I see myself as very, very, very important, then you can be subservient to me, you know, and I expect you maybe to be subject to me. But if I think of myself as... Uh, not quite measuring up, I can see you as uh, someone that I've got to kind of uh, please all the time, right? I think about Jesus. I describe him as, uh, in this mind, kind of the great equalizer. If I don't think very well of myself, he will lift me up. And if I think I'm kind of hot stuff and and, uh, the greatest thing since sliced bread, perhaps, he will humble me. And how important it is to have Jesus in our lives as that great equalizer. We may need humbling from time to time, and we may need encouraging, encouragement at the other times. So what do we do with all this baggage? I'd like to uh, look at a passage in the book of John, please. Uh, this is actually June chapter 4, uh, pardon me, June the 4th, 4th John 4. Okay, if you want to pick up your Bibles, that would be excellent. We're going to look at this passage a bit by bit, and I'll have commentary as we look at the Scripture as we go through. through. This just kind of sets the stage for the conversation that's going on. Uh, John chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob uh, had given to his son Joseph. 
Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from the journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. John doesn't um, waste his words. There's meaning behind these words, right? I mean, Jesus, for instance, just his humanity. Just the fact, Jesus was tired. They had traveled for a while, and they had to go through Samaria. Uh, They had another option, um, as Scripture points out. Uh, They could have gone another way. But through Samaria was the plan. Jesus had a plan here to go through Samaria, a place that many would not choose to go. Uh, But he's tired from the journey, and it's about the sixth hour. This woman comes uh, about the sixth hour. Generally, women, when it's cooler. So here's this Samaritan woman in the sixth hour of the day, roughly around noon, likely. I think the Romans would have considered it perhaps 6 p.m., but certainly it's later than early in the morning. John 4 now, and beginning in verse 7. As we go along in the story, a woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone into the city to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no, no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it was that was saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So let's look at this for a second, just this section of the the scripture. Uh, By the way, Jesus' words in red here. Who does she think that he is? It's rather obvious. He's a man. And he's also a Jewish man. (laughs) And who does she think she is? She, of course, knows that she's a Samaritan, just we don't always get to choose what family we're born into or what culture we're planted in. She is a Samaritan, and she is a woman. So what's wrong with this picture? (laughs) A Jewish man speaking with a Samaritan woman. And, of course, in the time, um, in that time, that was of concern. You know, you think about when I was a little kid, we had little worksheets, maybe you had them as well, where you'd have maybe a, uh, just a picture, and you would, uh, the teacher would ask you to find something in this picture that's, that's wrong. What's wrong with this picture? And it was kind of interesting. You'd see maybe a uh, uh, Western uh, picture depicted, and um, obviously from the uh, 1800s or something, and then part of the picture was a, an airplane flying by. Uh, Circle something in this picture that not, does not belong here. Okay, that airline would not be flying over something, you know, a, a scene in the 1800s. What's wrong with this picture? And there was, in that understanding of the time, the Samaritans kind of considered maybe half-breeds due to some of the history, where they were left in this area, uh, kind of those left over after the... Uh, bondage that they were, the other Jews were extracted from this area and and went to um, uh, a foreign land. Therefore, over time, these uh, uh, Jews previously who had intermarried uh, generation after generation after generation, and the Samaritans were looked down upon by the uh, Orthodox Jew, if you will. So she's just, there she is. She's a Samaritan, she's a woman, but she also sees Jesus as a man and a Jew. What's wrong with this picture? 
And uh, let's go now to verses 11 through 15 in this passage. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? Uh, He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water I give him will never thirst again. For the water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I may not be thirsty or have to come here to draw. So who does she think he is? Well, perhaps a magician, somehow to get down to that water that's very, very deep. You know, uh, you know that uh, you're going to draw water here in this place, in this deep, deep well? Which it's our understanding that even today, one of the deepest wells in the area is Jacob's well. So, you know, are you greater than our father Jacob? So, gosh, this is interesting. Who do I think, who does she think he is? Likely uh, someone that's going to, you know, be producing some sort of magic or something, getting this water at this place. But who does she think she is? Of course, the drudgery of being a laborer going to get water every day. Many women were in that role. And of course, she was a woman. She was a woman also uh, that felt embarrassed to be there early in the morning. And we'll understand that in a second in the story. Um, So the next section, 16 and, and following, 16 through 21. So Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying you have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one that you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. And the woman uh, said to him, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. So who does she think he is in this situation? Obviously, I perceive that you're a prophet. Wow. Uh, You've noted that the fact that I certainly know, and perhaps some of the folks around her knew, she was married five times and not with a husband at this time, evidently. Not a pretty picture here. So this prophet she's coming into contact with, she's looking at herself as certainly a sinner revealed, right? He knows this about me, and that can be uh, embarrassing, even quite scary. Uh, She might even see herself as, when when you ask the question, who does she think she is? Maybe a a worshiper that uh, is worshiping wrongly. I'm not sure. I was just raised a Samaritan, and, you know, Mount Gerizim is where we worship. But you guys... You Jews say it should be in Jerusalem. I'm a little bit confused here. So I may be, she may be seeing herself as a person who's worshiping incorrectly. And certainly that might be concerning to her. As the passage goes on. 22 through 26. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here. When true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. 
God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. And the woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming. He's called Christ, and he, when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Who does she think he is? Well, certainly he's a wise man um, uh, with some answers perhaps to her quandaries and to her concerns, certainly maybe even a teacher. Could it be that he's the Messiah? Who is this man? Who does she think he is? She's wondering. She's uh, investigating in her mind. Ah, could this be the Messiah? And who does she think she is? Perhaps just a confused Curious but confused individual come into contact with this rabbi, this teacher, this potential prophet. Oh, yeah, maybe even the Messiah. Interesting. Okay. So finally, we see in this passage, though, that Jesus does reveal himself. I am. I who speak to you am he. So it's coming very clear to her that uh, he is the Messiah, actually. And just then the disciples came back. They marveled that uh, he was talking with the woman. As we said earlier, that's, they might have marveled that. Anyone would have. What do you see? No one said, though, what do you see? She left her jar and went away into the town and said to the people, Come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Um, who does she think he is here? Um, uh, the Christ, the Messiah, and who does she think? Uh, and who does she think she is in this portion of the Scripture? Well, she's still a sinner. I don't like the idea of labels, but technically, yes, she is. But oh my goodness, she has a new thing going on here—a new way to think. She is a joyful sinner, if you will. Still has those sins going on, but she certainly could turn her life around. And that's exactly what she does. She now has a story to tell. She's quite excited about it. She leaves her jar that she all the time was having to fill and refill and refill and refill. And now, oh my, she has a different way of looking at life. And she has certainly a new way of thinking. Now, the... the portion of scripture here that comes up, another conversation. Jesus, once again, that same Savior, talking to his disciples. We're not going to go there. There's a lot of, a lot of stuff here. But uh, conversations with Jesus, the Messiah, Jesus, the Savior, Jesus, all of these uh, descriptions of Jesus. Previously in John chapter 3, Nicodemus came in contact with Jesus. So his disciples here on, in John 4, 31 through 38, we're not going to look at that. We're going to skip that part. But then it gets back to the story of uh, the Samaritan woman. And uh, let's finish this out. 39 through 42. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you've said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Ah, so she plants the seed. It's interesting where she says, uh, this man told me everything that I ever did. 
Could this be the Messiah? I mean, she wouldn't be so bold as to just proclaim the fact. Just wondering, I mean, she, after all, she's a woman. She would not know uh, or be expected to know, and she's in her place. She's put in her place, right? I'm just wondering, you know, uh, could, this, uh, could this be the, the, the Savior? Um, he told me all that I ever did. That's all I know. Of course, for two days they spent time with this man, Jesus, God in the flesh. And don't you imagine that maybe there were some other conversations, one-on-one conversations. Who do I think he is in a conversation talking to him? And a question might be asked, who do I think I am in relation to Jesus? Ultimately, over two days, many, many people spoke with him, maybe one-on-one. Maybe he spoke to them in smaller groups. We don't know all the facts here. But for two days, a relationship was built. And ultimately, they came then to the the conclusion that not just because of this seed planted that this woman tells us, that he tells them, uh, has told everything uh, there is to know about her. They conclude themselves that this is is the Savior of the world. Very important description of Jesus, of course, is the Savior of the world. Jesus is the Savior of the world. He's Savior savior of our souls, and he saves us in many, many other ways. The, The Greek word for Savior, sotir, could also be understood, of course, as a deliverer, delivering from something that is um, perhaps uh, an oppression of some sort. Uh, The idea of Savior is is someone saves from danger or ruin or defeat, right? So they conclude that, yeah, this is Jesus. He's the Savior. I even like the word liberator. A liberator. We think about Savior, we think about He's liberating us from our sins. He's liberating us uh, from our, also I want to add, our emotional baggage, if you will. The way we think, he liberates us from that. As I mentioned earlier, Jesus kind of being the great equalizer. You think you're hot stuff, you're going to be humbled. Thank you, Jesus. Because if I think I'm all that, I'm going to run into all kinds of problems in my relationships. And even to the point of narcissism, perhaps. But sometimes I feel down about myself and I want to be lifted up and I need to be lifted up and Jesus is there for that as well. The Savior knows, let's let's, let's get to know Jesus as as he's talking with her and uh, how he interacts with her. Um, The Savior knows about her baggage, okay? He absolutely knows. Uh, John 2, uh, 24 through 25 talks about he knew what was in a man. Same thing going on here. So Jesus knows about her baggage. Who does she think she is? We've already looked at that in the passage, right? She thinks she's sinful. Yes, that's true. She thinks she's Samaritan. Of course, it's true. She knows she's a woman. She feels maybe like just a laborer collecting the water. She's a sinner found out. Perhaps she's incorrectly worshiping. This is some of the baggage that maybe she's carrying around as far as her thoughts go, and certainly uh, sinful as far as her behavior goes. And perhaps she's just a confused learner. She's curious, but she's still confused. Jesus knows all about her baggage. The Savior leans in, though, and doesn't back away. So when we lean in to something, we're paying attention to it. We're all in. 
Now, knowing that she was a woman, knowing that she was a Samaritan, knowing that she was a sinful Samaritan woman, calls for falling back, right? Backing away from such a person. Oh, no, not for Jesus. He leans in and he's loving it. He's a searcher for her soul. Matter of fact, we don't, he doesn't care about the water he asked for to begin with. I'm thirsty, I'm tired. Phooey. Doesn't matter anymore. This is a precious soul that I'm talking with. He leans in and wants to get to know her. He reveals himself, of course. He knows he's the Christ and he knows he's the Messiah. He has a conversation with her. A woman, a sinful Samaritan woman. Talking about things like giving living water to her? Oh yes, of course. To all, to anyone. This water that would come in in a person is welling up to eternal life. A sinful Samaritan woman needs to hear this story one-on-one? Of course she does. Of course everybody does. Believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. For God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Oh my. Now, uh, of course, in the passage here, he's leaning in. He's teaching her these very, very important. As a matter of fact, uh, more important sometimes than, than the way the, uh, teacher, the teachers of the law, the Pharisees and so on, would be getting into the facts, but then they didn't understand the depths of the spiritual richness of Jesus and the message that he had. Oh yes, he's willing to spend this time with her. And ultimately he, he, he reveals himself to her for the first time. Really, I who speak to you am he. The Savior also lightens her load. Um, who does she think she is now after this? encounter with Jesus. She's still a sinner, but now she has hope. She, she's, she's a worshiper. She cares enough to worship. Now she has some uh, freedom, options. I don't know what this thing called worshiping in spirit and truth is, but at least it's, been, it's possible. That's interesting to me. She might be thinking. So this is what she thinks. This is what she thinks now. I am a worshiper with freedom, options. But the, uh, the core of my worshiping is that I worship in spirit and in truth, not necessarily where you're at. And, of course, we can see all kinds of things coming from this initial <clears throat> conversation that are rich and deep and very, very important. And, of course, she sees herself, who am I? Well, I'm someone with a lot of good news to share. So watch me go. Here I go. I'm going to tell my friends in Sychar. I hope she had some friends. She certainly made some friends. Um, she might have not perceived, perceived herself as a person with many friends due to her background. Her behavior was perhaps obvious and seen by many. Five husbands and not being with a husband now. A sinner, basically. And perhaps quite overtly a sinner. But now she has a message to, to pass on. And so that Savior lightens her load helping her to see to go from a sinner, sinner with hope, to a sinner with hope, a worshiper with options, perhaps, and a bearer of good news. So she goes and she tells the good news. Now, how about us? The Savior knows about our baggage as well. And we have a lot of it sometimes. Our emotional baggage. There is a... Uh, 
uh, an inventory that's, that's been published called The Dysfunctional Family Scale by Dr. Arlene Weissman. And um, it gives us some perspective, perhaps, on what's very common, just to normalize it. These are some thoughts that we might have. Um, uh, who do you think you are? So think about yourself in these questions. Do you see yourself as a failure? Perhaps thinking things like, uh, people would look down on me if they found out all of my mistakes, the mistakes that I've made in my life. I'm less than perfect. And the way I see other people might be that they are my righteous accusers, as if they're better off than me. They're not, but that's how I see myself, perhaps, as a failure with that kind of thinking. Do, my, do I see myself as perhaps unaccomplished? Thinking sad or, and uh, unfortunate thoughts like... Uh, uh, People with, under, with outstanding careers, social status, wealth, or fame are bound to be happier than people who aren't especially successful. Do you feel unaccomplished? Other people may be seen as competition. I did better than you. Whew, I guess I'm important. Um, in comparison to others, do you see yourself as a, unaccomplished? Perhaps you see yourself as unlovable, unfortunately, and this is always unfortunate, thinking things like, I must be loved to feel like I'm a worthwhile human being. Of course, we know that at all times we are loved by our Father in Heaven, our, our Creator and Sustainer, but do you feel sometimes unlovable? And on the other end of the scale, how about entitled? Do you feel entitled? Okay, this is where you, you might be looking down on others, thinking things like, I often get upset when people do not meet my expectations. Right? I'm entitled to uh, better treatment. I'm entitled to a better uh, status, whatever the case may be. Perhaps even hopeless, thinking, I don't believe uh, I will ever feel truly happy or worthwhile. And that's not a good uh, uh, way to be thinking. But the Savior knows about this baggage already beforehand. He's our creator. He's our sustainer. He knows all about us. One scripture tells us, he says, he knows how many hairs are on our head. That's how much he cares about us. One of my favorite passages in the Old Testament is Psalm 139. Psalm 139. You won't see it on the screen, but pick up your Bibles, if you will, for a sec. And let's look at this packet, passage, um, Psalm 139. We're not going to look at the whole psalm. But basically on the front end of the psalm and at the end of the psalm, he talks about how Jesus, how God sees us in our thinking. He says, O Lord, you have searched me and have known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down. And you are acquainted with all of my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, Behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. And as he closes out the psalm, the psalmist simply says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there is any grievous way in me. And lead me to the way everlasting. So yes, he definitely knows our baggage. Next, of course, the Savior that knows our baggage, much like the Samaritan woman, he leans in with us. 
and he doesn't back away. Sometimes we, we actually behave in our relationship with God as if uh, we, we maybe have to tap him on the shoulder and, you know, as if he maybe isn't there. And sometimes circumstances in our lives maybe lead us to conclude wrongly that he doesn't care. That maybe we're not feeling, you know, even worthy to be talking to God. But the Savior, in our case, much like the Samaritan woman, of course, is also leaning in and not backing away. He reveals himself to us. 1 Peter 5 and 7 says this, Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. What do we do with all of our baggage? How about anxiety? Cast it on him. Why? Because he cares for you. So who is this Jesus? Who is God? He's our comforter. And we need comfort from time to time, perhaps quite often. Ephesians 2 verse 13. But now in Christ, you who are once afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We feel afar off, but we've been brought near. How? By the blood of Christ, a bridge. From a distance to God to close to God. And so, uh, Jesus in his leaning in is a relationship builder. He builds a bridge from once being distant to now being close by, close to him. And of course, Romans chapter 5, verses 6 and 8, 6 through 8, for while we were still, still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good person one would even die. But God shows his love for us in while we were still sinners, he died for us. So our proactive, uh, proactive once and for all sacrifice for us. Proactive, leaning in, not backing away. You're a sinner, I'm going to die for you anyway. As a matter of fact, that's why I'm dying, is for all sinners. He doesn't wait for us to be worthy enough. And to be not a sinner, to be saved from sin, that wouldn't even make sense. No. He's proactive and a once-for-all, given a once-for-all sacrifice. And of course, the, the story of Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19 closes out there as Jesus spent time with Zacchaeus uh, to the chagrin of those around him, of course. He was a tax collector, and so he spent some time with him. Once again, a relationship. I'm going to come to your house today, and uh, we're going we're to eat. We're going to have a meal. We're going to be interacting. You're going to maybe wonder who I am. I know who you are. He closes out that passage in Luke chapter 19. Today his salvation has come to this house, since he also is the son of Abraham, to seek and to save the lost. So Jesus uh, is a soul winner, a searcher for souls. That's your soul and my soul. Proactively leaning in and not backing away. Like the Samaritan woman, he also lightens our load in a big way. The passage we looked at earlier, John chapter 3, verses 16 through 18. Let's look at that for a second. Uh, when we think about ourselves, who do we think we are now? For God so loved the world that he gave his son, his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already 
because he has not believed in the name of the only son. So God so loved us that uh, he gave his son for us. He's not willing for anyone to be condemned, but saved. Another passage where Jesus speaks to those that would listen. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light, Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30. So how do you see yourself now? How about cherished and valued child of God that might need some rest from labor? And that's how we want to be seen. That's how we need to see ourselves, thanks to Jesus. John 16, 33 gives us a picture of how we might want to see ourselves. Who am I? Who am I? An important question. John chapter 16 says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world, you're going to have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. The Savior of the world, the liberator, has overcome the world, and it's difficult being in the world and living in this world nowadays, isn't it? He's the liberator. He is the Savior, and he has utterly and completely overcome the world. So now I'm at peace. That's how I see myself. The liberator has overcome. Thank you. Thank you, Lord. And what can we do about this baggage as we close out today? What can we do about all this baggage? Uh, Let go and give it to the Savior of the world. And uh, psychologists, counselors, and so on may think that uh, we can move a person from point A to point B and and all that. But without Jesus Christ, uh, the Savior of the world, it means nothing. He saves us from our lost souls, of course, but he also saves us from our unhealthy thought processes. So back to uh, McGee's search for significance and these false beliefs that we have. We go from these false beliefs to a better way of thinking when we give it to the Savior. Once again, a false belief that you may have, uh, I must have the approval of certain other people before I can feel good about myself. How you see me is so important that I can't feel good about myself. I'm an approval addict. Now with Jesus, I'm accepted based on what Christ did, not how well I perform. Another false belief, I must meet certain standards in order to feel good about myself. The new view now is because of Jesus' sacrifice, I am already pleasing to God. A false belief that might be engaging in our lives before Jesus or before we recognize our relationship with Jesus is that those who fail, including me, are unworthy of love and they deserve to be punished. How about now? Jesus is my advocate with the Father when I sin. And then, of course, this uh, very concerning outcome of thought. I am what I am. I cannot change. I'm hopeless. With Jesus, you and I are a new creation, brand new, starting fresh, thinking again of that Samaritan woman. Think about other conversations with Jesus in the Gospels. And they were changed. They became new in all facets. Most important, of course, is our salvation. 
and whether we're in the family of God in the first place. And that's what he came. He came to seek and to save souls. But part of that saving and seeking and saving was how you think. But right now, I'd like to, for us to think about, okay, our, our spiritual relationship with God. And we have this opportunity each week to respond, actually respond this morning as you come forward, perhaps, or perhaps talk to our elders in the back in the prayer room. Uh, definitely these, these opportunities are there for you. Again, for conversation. You might ask yourself once again, uh, who am I? And hopefully you see yourself as child of God. Uh, my wife Audrey and several others in Orlando, where we were for several years previous to coming here, actually began a program called Daughters of the King. And that was designed to help young ladies, young girls, preteen and teen, to definitely see themselves as a daughter of the king and not what the world was feeding them. So how do you see yourself? You are a daughter, a son of the king, but now is an opportunity for you to perhaps ask for prayers so that you might be reminded of these, this role that you have, this new way of thinking, and also perhaps even be baptized so that this relationship can begin and you can have great, great hope for the future. We'd love to help you in any way. Will you come while we stand and sing?